Welcome to Brand Story, Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week, we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Joining me today on Brand Story, Inc. is Chris Russo. Chris is CEO of Fifth Generation Sports, a boutique advisory firm focused on sports, technology, and digital media. He formerly served as head of digital media for the NFL and more recently served as head of the M&A sports practice for investment bank Houlihan Loki. At Houlihan, Chris led the sale of Sports Illustrated to Authentic Brands Group. Among other sports and media deals, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me on. So excited to have you here. I I think, in my opinion, the two biggest stories in the business of sports over the past several months have been the explosion of SPACs and the business activity and convergence between media companies and gambling companies. So if it's cool with you, let's start with SPACs, the seemingly sexy acronym for special purpose acquisition companies, often dubbed shell companies or blank check companies. Start with the basics. What is a SPAC? Yeah, a a SPAC or a special purpose acquisition company is a public vehicle or a public company that has capital but doesn't have any operations. And essentially that company has some period of time between 18 and 24 months usually to go buy an asset or merge with an asset that actually hasn't been identified up front. That asset may fall within a certain window of, of ideas like sports or media or TMT, but essentially a team of people raise money to go out and buy a company that has to be executed within the next 18 to 24 months. Once they do that, that acquisition or that merger, there is really nice compensation for the SPAC manager of his back team, which is part of the incentive to get involved for, for those folks. So it makes, it makes um, sense from that perspective. I'm, I'm curious why the recent explosion, as we take this in mid-February, uh, just in the last two weeks, you've had the, the owner of the Las Vegas NHL team, you've had Colin Kaepernick come out with one, A-Rod came out with a $500 million one. What's behind the ex- recent explo- seeming recent explosion of this in the sports marketplace? Well, first of all, overall SPACs have exploded. Last year, uh, there was about $80 billion of capital raised through SPACs. The year before, it had been about $13 billion, so tremendous increase. And now this year, I believe there's over $40 billion that's been raised, and we're only in, in mid-February. So overall, the SPAC market has been really hot. In terms of sports, we had the DraftKings SPAC deal early on, which I think everybody saw as performing well and exciting and and served as kind of a North star in this space. So that was one reason I think there's a lot of excitement in sports. You also have a lot of talented sports executives who may not want to go out and raise their own private equity fund or their venture fund, but it seems a bit easier to go out and do a SPAC. So you've seen a lot of people jump into it and the capital has been available. And as I said, there's attractive economics for some of the SPAC team members who may get up to 20% of the, of the total uh, pre-merger company. Yeah, it, it, that, that makes sense, obviously, from the person putting the SPAC together, right? Like there's, there's a lot of benefit to it. You know, f- this is your area and not mine. And that, you know, in terms of trying to do an IPO or bring a company public, it's, it's a due diligence, you know, nightmare and time consuming and, and all those things. And this seems to be a, a protect, perhaps an easier way to do that. But I'm curious, on the other side, of people who are actually investing into the SPACs, um, as you said, there aren't necessarily tangible businesses that you're investing in. You're investing in a group of people to go help you make money. So what's the incentive for 
folks to invest in the SPACs. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, there are, there are incentives. And, and before I get to that, just a quick disclaimer, I'm not providing investment advice and people should check with their uh, investment advisors and so forth. But the reason that uh, some people like investing in SPACs is because it gives them the optionality. They can invest, but they have the right to redeem their shares once they find out what company is going to be acquired. So if they find if the company, it seems like an exciting deal for them, they can stay in. If it doesn't, they can redeem their shares and pull their money out, which, which is nice to have. The other thing is there are some investors that like backing certain executives, whether it be in the sports space or other, other areas, which otherwise they may not have an opportunity to be in business with. So that's helpful. The history of, of SPACs overall has been, there's been some that have performed well, some have not performed well. But we are in many ways in really uncharted territory here with the number and volume of SPACs that we're seeing. It's, it's such a fascinating dynamic on a couple fronts, right? One, I think in the sports space specifically, there's this element of star power. It's not too dissimilar from like uh, what's happened in the content space, right? Uh, LeBron James starts Spring Hill Entertainment. Every, every athlete seems to be launching their own content or media company like Tom Brady, right? And over the past couple of years, and it's seemingly the same type of thing. Star power grabs the headline, um, you know, management team is, is going to go invest in the place. But I think in the marketplace, and one of my macro takeaways, I'd love you to either um, swap down or, or add some color to is just how much money there is burning in people's pockets that this many people believe they can raise 250, 500 million slugs of, of capital what takeaways do you have from what this means to the sports media and technology marketplace in general? It's, uh, it's very good news because if you have a lot of capital flowing into the space, whether that be sports or technology or media, it's, it's good news for people who have companies who want to merge them in. It's good news for people who want to use that capital to grow these businesses. So I think in general, it's great. The question will be over the next sort of 12 to 24 months, are there enough assets out there? How broadly are you defining quote unquote sports? And can you find something that really makes sense? And that, that is the question people are asking. But I think if you broadly define sports and it's you know sports media, sports technology, sports content, ticketing events, there are a much wider array of assets out there than, than, than otherwise you might think. Yeah, and, and Chris is very modest, um, you know, in terms of the bio, we talked about how you were part of the sale of sports, you led the sale of Sports Illustrated, you were a former head of uh, digital media for the NFL, you also created and built and sold your own digital media publishing company, like there's a whole bunch more on that bio that from a relevant standpoint, you're, you're someone I was so excited to talk to. Um, and, and our listeners tend to be media publishing and content studio executives, including many brands. And so as digital media companies look to increase their enterprise value, aside from the obvious revenue generation and profitability of you know, the basic fundamentals, what advice do you have in terms of where you see the marketplace going in terms of premium value on enterprise value? Uh, I, in, in general, and, and you talked about revenue, but maybe drilling down a little bit more, the media companies that can have multiple revenue streams that can make a paywall work, that can add a real commerce element to complement advertising, that's the obvious one. And a lot of media companies, digital media companies have been working on that over the last several years to diversify the revenue streams and not be so reliant on advertising. But the other one that I think is this outlier is just the emergence of sports betting and the amount of ad revenue and sponsorship money that can come into the space. And that certainly advantages sports digital media companies more than it might benefit an entertainment media company or a news media company. So to the extent that 
publishers can incorporate some elements of sports betting content or appeal to that ad base, uh, I think that can be very beneficial. In fairness to Chris, when I first met him, uh, it was probably half a decade ago, we had, we had uh, breakfast in New York City when we used to be able to do those kind of things. And I remember, because at the time, we were starting to build out a digital media publishing portfolio, both IP that we own and working for other clients. And I, I remember you specifically saying at that point, you're like, Jay, whatever you do, get a sports gambling, get a gambling component into your portfolio. <laughs> yeah. And here we are five years later. Um, it's not that I didn't listen to you. I didn't act on it, right? <laughs> and so here we are. It's like, it's, it's the Wild West. And I want to get to gambling in, in a second, though. Um, you know, to that point of being so much money out there in SPACs, and are there certain things that you're seeing certain markets? So I'll throw one out there. So for example, I feel like podcasting, if you're an owner of a podcasting company right now that has a significant um, content library or, uh, you know, or special niche, I feel like th there seems to be a frothy market for acquisition and consolidation and, and, and maybe it extends well beyond podcasts, but one would think, you know, and you're a smart guy, uh, one would think when there's this much money out there um, via the SPAC marketplace, that consolidation in the industry is an inevitability. And, and is that a fair assumption? And, and if not, why? And if so, I, I think in, a, in general terms, part of an advantage, part of the advantage of a SPAC is access to not only the initial capital, but ongoing capital. So over time, you can look at roll up, struck, uh, roll up uh, opportunities across a number of different industries. I would also agree with you that there are certain sectors that appear to be hotter than others, podcasting certainly being one of them. And that is because the audience is continuing to grow in podcasting, but also the type of advertising is very immersive. There's host reads. It's very effective for many advertisers. So I do think there are certain sectors like podcasting, like betting, you know, potentially esports, gaming, where, where you have a lot of growth ahead that, that tends to be attractive. You know, I'm going a little off script here, but, you know, maybe hearkening back to the, you know, you were the sale of Sports Illustrated, which is, you know, obviously a, a pretty big brand. I'm curious in terms of uh, one of the conversations we have on this podcast a lot is, especially with digital media companies and not extensions of global media companies. I'm not mm -hmm. talking about an extension of an NBC property or a, you know, an ESPN property. I'm talking about like a, you know, um, the bar stools of the world or right like the the copa 90s and, and other digital media properties that are out there um, gut check me on this it seems to be that people are starting to really pay attention to uh, less about the vanity metrics and more about the stickiness or engagement of the community component of these brands and what I mean by you know whether you want to measure that by social media metrics or I always like to talk about the bar stool factor where, you know, Presidente asked somebody to buy a hat and the next day they sell 30,000 of them, right? The ability to kind of like rally and engage a community. Um, am I telling myself a story in that or what's going on in the marketplace from a perception on, on media properties and the value of community? We, we, th that is certainly important, increasingly important. I mean, you know, 10, 15 years ago, people are talking about unique users and, and that was kind of what it was and value per unique user. Now, I think it is more about uh, your P&L matters. I think the, the, the depth of your uh, relationship with your customers or, or your users, the ability to drive direct commerce, the, the, the ability to drive subscription, 
I think it's a much more multi-dimensional view of the strength of a business than, you know, we just had 50 million unique users last month. I, I think there's a, there's a more, a greater sophistication about it these days. Well, you touched on this. I want to go there. Um, gambling, right? Segment gambling. Talk about engaged viewers uh, or consumers. You're at the forefront of the fantasy game movement with fantasy sports ventures many moons ago. And now with the state gambling prohibitions toppling like dominoes, We've seen sports media companies and gambling companies pair up like dance competitions. I mean, you had Barstool and Penn National, Sinclair with their naming rights, uh, Bally's with their, their naming rights deal with the Sinclair Regional Sports Networks. You have NBC and PointsBet. What's your take on where we are in this game of media and gambling mergers? I think we're, we're still in the early innings overall in terms of media plus betting. There are a number of big deals that were announced, whether they be uh, acquisitions, whether they be strategic commercial deals, but I do believe we'll see more deals between media companies and betting companies in part because the betting companies need to attract customers and part of the, the place they're going to attract them is through these media vehicles. Now over time, we may see more middle tier and long tail companies get into the act and start doing deals with betting companies. We may see a, a different sort of flavor of deal that might be more driven by a cost per acquisition or a referral deal rather than a kind of a sponsorship. But I believe because we have 20 operators that were more than 20 operators in the US that are competing for audience, we'll continue to see media companies and betting companies do interesting deals across a lot of different flavors. What are the things that you're, what are the, what are, what are the types of things that you see coming in the space, right? As these mergers take hold and kind of, to your point, um, trying to engage and, and impact you know, sports, the, the consumption component of this, what do you see coming down the pike here? Well, we're still, we're still figuring it out. I mean, it's one thing to send a referral to a betting company. It's another thing to think about how you engage a fan while he or she is watching a game and encouraging that fan to bet. And so what I think will be critical to watch over the next few years is this integration of, of the broadcast or the stream and the betting and how much in-game betting ultimately results and where that goes. And hopefully that doesn't get true and too intrusive that it angers the people who don't like betting. But that becomes a big opportunity is that integrated messaging, which really hasn't happened in any detailed way to date. Yeah, it's interesting too, because there's this whole other, it gets a little wonky and so I don't want to go too far down the road, but this state by state regulation. And then when you're talking about national sports telecast and, you know, it, it gets pretty complicated, which is, it's, it's pretty interesting to see that Bally's and Sinclair deal, which is regional where you can actually on a case by case basis, potentially do different things there. So it's, uh, it's, it's something I've been keeping an eye on. You know, Chris, one thing that was interesting is the last event, uh, one of the last events I went to before COVID was in Atlanta at Turner Sports headquarters. There was a pro summit, like an OTT um, convention. And walking out of there, there was one key takeaway. And it was, if you haven't really thought and built out a strategy and execution plan around sports gambling, you're behind the eight ball, right? And it was the conversations that I had there were, uh, you know, maybe I'm old school. They're a bit scary, like talking about, <laughs> prop bets on pitch by pitch in baseball games. And, you know, and this, this notion of, um, you know, keeping people engaged throughout the game on an ability to kind of integrate into your point of mix. And people were kind of talking about that. And there was this, 
you know, thankfully, I think there was a, this ethical and moral component of like, okay, what's the line there? Like at what point, um, you know, at what point, you know, let's face it, there are folks out there who suffer from addiction and things like that, other people who are fine with it. But I'm, I'm curious as you look at, you know, and then you have things like the integrity of the game and one would argue, yeah, but now we're legalizing it before it was still happening. And so the, there, there's all these different arguments around that. And I'm, I'm curious, do you see marketplace opportunities for companies in these areas around these shadows? Like, um, and, not in a, and not in a nefarious way, in a positive way. Yeah, there are there are companies that are already providing uh, integrity services to leagues and to media companies. There are emerging ones as well as well-established ones, and I think those are going to be very important because whether you are a, a, a pro sports league or you're a college or university, you want to make sure that you maintain the integrity that that your constituents understand the rules, that you don't make a, a silly mistake and create a lot of negative publicity. So I do think there's opportunities for companies that are going to help the sports ecosystem. Uh, really, uh, really do a good job with integrity and make sure we don't get on the wrong side of a, of a scandal or an issue that really sets us back. Very cool. Uh, let's talk about what has you excited in your current day job as the CEO of Fifth Generation Sports. Share some of the things you, that you're able to, that, you, that you've been working on um, and, and that are exciting you and, and maybe with a context of a little bit more slant in, in the digital media space. Sure. So without getting into specific uh, uh, clients, Jay, I I have an advisory part of my work, which is consulting, particularly around digital media and sports betting and helping teams, leagues, media companies figure out how to uh, leverage the sports betting revolution, not only for revenue, but for engagement and all the other benefits we talked about. I also do uh, middle market M&A, similar to what I had done at Houlihan Loki, where I help companies sell themselves that tend to be you know, again, as we say, middle market companies, not startups, not the, the Uber companies, but, but sort of in between. So that's part of my, my, my mission. And then the other part of my mission is looking to build and, and acquire sports assets that are, are going to be more of an equity play for me and my company, similar to what I did several years ago in, in building and acquiring companies around fantasy sports ventures. So I have this dual approach, the advisory piece and the, the acquisition piece, but all of it really focused on this confluence of sports tech and media. What has you most excited about where we are? Uh, you know, I hate to I hate to keep repeating it, but what I'm most excited about where we're going with sports betting, just because there is so we're 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 in a, a very robust time, but we're still early on, and I believe in the next five to ten years, the amount of opportunities in that space are going to be transformative, and I, I think they will mostly all be positive for the people who handle it responsibly, and I'm I'm really happy to be part of that part because I, I was an early innovator in the fantasy space and now we can we can hopefully translate some of that knowledge into what's going on in betting. You know, I want to circle back. We talked briefly about podcasting and, and maybe a, the more macro kind of the audio movement going on, which seems to be kind of at a zenith right now. Um, you know, I, I keep telling, uh, we had Kevin Jones from, from Blue Wire podcast on here and I just keep saying, man, I would like to be you right now um, based on what's going on. We've had Clubhouse come out. We've had some other new, um, you know, Clubhouse has, has been around for a bit, but, you know, we've had other new audio products and services coming out in the sports space. What are you seeing in the sports audio category? I, well, first, I, I love the podcasting space. About six years ago, I helped a company called Cadence 13 with its initial business plan. Cadence is a roll-up of 
podcast with sports as well as non-sports, and then was the banker on that sale to uh, Intercom several years later, which was which was great for me. So I saw it really firsthand, and I I, I love the space. I, I see what's happening in sports with obviously the Ringer. Uh, and that sale to Spotify, uh, a big part of Barstool was certainly the podcasting. David Locke, who you probably know, had a, a network of podcasts. So I think the, the, the future is bright for sports po- podcasting, in part because the content can really be tailored and customized. And then the other point is that the advertising, as I said earlier, is really immersive, uh, can really be read by hosts who are influencers. So there's a lot of things to like about it. And it also benefits from, again, this other theme, which is there's a lot of advertisers, sports betting money, others that want to get into that environment of, of these users. So it's it's really overall a really great place. Very cool. So leagues, teams, or other sports media entities you're watching these days, admiring how they're adapting into this now longstanding COVID cloud sure well well first uh, the nba i always watch as as a great leader in many things i think they did a terrific job early on in the pandemic and and getting the bubble up and running and getting their season done and the role they played as well as espn and others in the last dance that's a, a memorable part of the pandemic i grew up in chicago so that was great so always watch what the nba does even today they are finding innovative ways to potentially allow institutional investors into their league on the business side so, so they're, they're terrific. Uh, my ex-employers, uh, the NFL, I think they did a great job this year. They got their games played. Uh, they got the Super Bowl done. Certainly wasn't the ratings that were that last year. But I think in general, the league, uh, the owners, the commissioner, the players uh, did a phenomenal job despite difficult circumstances. And the other one I would mention is a, 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 an old friend of mine, Steve Phelps, who was with me at the NFL years ago, now head of NASCAR. I think they've really done a, a great job this year in terms of of handling some, the, the pandemic, some social issues, uh, coming up with this iRacing concept. They've got Michael Jordan now involved in the family. I, I think there's a lot of momentum in NASCAR and I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to do this year. Yeah, I, I thought one of the highlights we'll look back at um, was actually from your old employee the NFL when was that Nickelodeon uh, telecast, which I think quite as I watched that I was like oh my gosh if I was the NFL I'd be trying to collect royalty checks on creating a new category of like the children. (laughs) It's it's a great look I think that sometimes when you have difficult times you have to innovate and experiment and I think the notion now of multiplexing games or future rights deals may really be following that pattern and if we've got to reach younger fans in a different way on a different platform Maybe there's a way to do it without necessarily hurting our core platform or our core broadcaster. And so I think that could be a really good lesson from, from the last several months. Yeah, and I think what's, what's brilliant about it, like ESPN has been doing the mega cast around the college football championship and, you know, really cool as, as a football fan, as, as you know I am and you, know, you are. But to, to kind of splinter it a different way, right? Like generational marketing was just brilliant. And um, <laughs> It's, it's pretty cool. I'm excited. Like uh, last week's guest was a guy named uh, David Hull. And, and we spent a lot of time because he's a futurist. And one of the things that we talked about, he just uh, wrote a book on 2021 and kind of like future trends. He does them each year. And this notion of COVID forcing kind of what he called, I think, um, the home being the cockpit of your starship, right? Like we've now turned a work, play, at home environment and the multi screen multi-screen is happening for years before this, but 
just the, the, the concept of consuming sports in your own home at a different level now that we've all been trained on Zooms and interactive video and things like that. It's pretty exciting time for innovation, I think. Yeah, I think the, the future of sports is bright. I, I, I will be watching closely this year how quickly fans can get back into the stadiums in New York. We're going to start to have fans in a couple of weeks. And I think there is a lot of talk among uh, sports fans or sports executives about the pent-up demand to actually have that live experience. And, and we'll see how quickly that comes back. But I agree with you. There's been a lot of innovation in terms of, of different kinds of broadcast production techniques and, and other consumer features that I think will will continue on past the past the last several months. Very cool. All right. So on the personal side, now uh, each week we do we do morning must. So time to fess up, Chris Russo. Who gets the hall pass into your email inbox and your social media feeds? How do you stay on top of everything? I, you know, I, I do read uh, industry uh, publications and, and industry trades. I actually do a podcast with Sport Business, so I, I like that publication like some of the others in the industry, Sportico, Sport Business Journal. But I would say, Jay, the, the way I find out what's going on is I really focus on who do I want to try to talk to today, tomorrow, later in the week, because I find the conversations that I have with industry folks and friends uh, informs me a lot more than even reading things in my inbox or looking at things on social media. So I try to be pretty disciplined about figuring out who I want to try to get to and have a conversation with that week. And that's, that's what I focus on. That's great advice. I need to heed that and not go down the rabbit holes I go down. Uh, last question for you, Chris, before I let you go, what are you reading for fun these days? I'm going to be a little, a little, a little boring, Jay. Uh, I, I have read some books recently, but I wouldn't necessarily say they were for fun, sort of quasi business. Uh, so I, I read a book recently called the book of esports, uh, which is written by a guy named William Colas. And it's about the history of esports back to Pong and Atari and Nintendo and traces that history through the 70s and 80s and to today. And for me, someone who grew up in the 70s and 80s, it was great to put the current esports phenomenon in some kind of context. So that was fun for me. It was still kind of businessy, uh, but that was good. Uh, and then I read another book called Front Row Seat, which was about uh, a youth sports company that had some challenges and some issues written by a guy that I know in the industry, Steve Griffin. It's kind of a Grisham-esque kind of uh, story around the context of youth sports. So that was fun. Uh, so that's uh, that's my boring uh, book reading list over the last couple of months. Man, you're conjuring up images of, why am I having images of pitfall and jumping on alligator heads, jumping in, in my <laughs> donkey yeah. Kong. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, but it was a good a good perspective. So that was that was a lot of fun. Well, awesome. Chris Russo, Fifth Generation Sports, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for listening to Brand Story, Inc. We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.